0: All right, well, we are continuing our series on parables today. And if you've been with us, you know, we've been doing this for the last uh, several weeks. And one of the main themes that we've talked about, that we've covered, is the importance of really paying attention. How important it is that we really listen, that we really hear what Jesus is saying. And to illustrate how challenging this can be, we're going to watch a really quick video clip and this is a clip of a commercial that is based on a study that was done about 20 years ago. And this study was looking at our ability to really pay attention. So let's watch that together. This is an awareness test. How many passes does the team in white make? Go! answer is 13. But did you see the moonwalking bear? All right. Did you guys did you guys see it? Anybody see it? Oh, some people did. Okay. So according uh, to the study that was done originally, this was at Harvard University, something like 50% of people do not see the moonwalking bear the first time they watch the video. And, you know, the point is is pretty simple, right? It's easy to miss something that you're not looking for. It's easy to not see maybe because we're distracted or because we're not even thinking along those lines. But I think it's Kind of alarming, right, to watch that video and realize, man, I could miss something so obvious, something that's right in front of my face, because I'm not paying attention. And you know, the message of the parables is not a moonwalking bear, and I want to be clear that Jesus isn't trying to hide the truth, he's not trying to trick us, but at the same time, what we've seen over and over again is that the parables require that we pay attention. And the parable we're going to look at this morning is a great example of this, Uh, how the parables can be chaotic, how there's a lot going on, but at the heart of this parable is a simple but powerful message that we don't want to miss. Uh, So if you have a Bible, let's turn together to Luke chapter 16, uh, verse 19. And if you're in uh, your Bibles or if you turn to that passage, what you might notice is that this parable comes uh, just verses after the parable of the shrewd manager. If you were here two weeks ago, I talked about this parable then, and we talked about this idea that Jesus kind of slowly unfolds throughout this parable of kind of giving the best of ourselves, of our lives, of our resources to the kingdom, how we can use our determination and creativity to bless others, and what we see is that immediately after this parable, after Jesus tells this story about using what we have, using our money, using our stuff, using our creativity, we're told that the Pharisees overhear this and they react. Uh, Luke sixteen fourteen says, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts what people value highly is detestable in God's sight. And so this is kind of the context for our parable this morning, for this next story that Jesus is going to tell. You know, he's continuing to address this question of our our stuff, our resources, our money, our wealth. He's continuing this kingdom narrative about how we're meant to use what we've been blessed with. But there's also now this strand of resistance the Pharisees. We know that these Pharisees are are, are kind of looking down on this idea. And there's also this implied idea that others, maybe some in the crowds, maybe even the disciples are feeling this resistance to the way Jesus talks about worldly wealth. And so that's kind of the, the perspective that he's addressing as he tells this next parable, beginning in verse 19. Jesus says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died when was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said to them, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Now, I think it's pretty easy to see how someone could be distracted when reading this parable. There is some really heavy, intense subject matter here these lifelike visions of heaven and hell, another blistering condemnation of wealth, and this kind of seemingly cold, even ruthless denial of a simple request for mercy. There's so much in this parable that's challenging, that's surprising, that's convicting, and even maybe a little bit scary. And yet at the heart of it is a really simple truth, something that's really basic, something that's easy for us to kind of miss, to pass over without giving a second thought. And so before we continue, before we really dive into the parable, I want to make this simple truth as clear as possible to kind of reveal the dancing bear, if you will. Okay, so here it is. Here's what we're going to work towards. Jesus wants us to see the importance of Scripture informing forming our inner and outer life. When it comes to our beliefs, our attitudes, and behaviors, we need to be guided first and foremost by the Bible. Now, I know that doesn't sound like much. It's not super exciting. I think most of us come to church every Sunday looking for a little bit more than read your Bibles. But this is a really important idea. The central truth of this parable is how easy it is to miss this idea and why it's so important that we don't, that we don't miss it. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through this parable, and we want to kind of keep this central truth in the back of our minds, and we're going to come back to it later. But along the way, what we want to look at is three ideas, three kind of points, that are also important in their own right, but they'll also help us to understand this central truth when we get back to it. Okay, so let's dive in, we'll start with our first point, which is pretty apparent. This is the most basic level of the parable, and I think most of us will recognize this when we read through this. That Jesus wants us to consider how we treat those who are in need. Okay, so right from the beginning of the parable in verse 19, Jesus introduces us to these two central characters of the story. Uh, And you'll notice that Jesus really kind of goes out of his way to describe their situation, describe how they're living, because he doesn't want us to miss who they are and, and how they, they live. Uh, the rich man who is never named, he lives in just utter extravagance. That he is fine living, wealthy living at its uppermost. Uh, linen apparently, I don't really know anything about fabrics, but apparently linen is really nice, and so that was like a sign of elite social status, Uh, purple was the rarest, most costly dye in the ancient world, and so what Jesus is telling us is, is one, that he's very wealthy, but there's also an element here of like showiness, a little bit of pridefulness and ego about the way he presents himself to the world. Now, more important than this, though, is that his wealth is contrasted with the extreme poverty of this other character, of Lazarus. And Lazarus lives at the gate of this rich man, and his existence is pretty miserable. He's hungry. He's desperately hungry. He's covered with sores. When you read this, you might kind of think to yourself, well, maybe it's not so bad. At least he has these these nice little puppies to keep him company and you know, like little canine companions. But that's really not the force of this uh, at all. The commentators suggest that these are really not nice dogs. They're like, like mean, like dogs. And maybe they're like, like trying to eat him or trying to attack him as they, they lick his sores. I kind of imagine, you know, like the hyenas from the Lion King That's what I think of when I think about these dogs, just kind of the way they like mock him with their presence. And anyway, the idea is that these dogs make Lazarus's horrible life even more miserable than it already is. And so Lazarus's description is obviously powerful because it's easy for us to, I think, for us to develop a mental image of him. We've all seen someone like Lazarus. We've all experienced someone in this kind of poverty. And so Lazarus is a very real part of not just this story, but a part of everyone's life. And so one of the questions we have to ask is, what is the point of this contrast? Jesus obviously isn't saying that we have to help every single person who's like Lazarus, because that would be impossible. But at the same time, he is very clearly, very specifically attacking the behavior of this rich man. It's very clear that what he's doing is not okay. Because he lives right beside him. Lazarus lives at his gate. And so, right, you can gather that Lazarus would have walked by this poor uh, cripple or this poor broken person at least twice a day every time he went out and came home, probably more than that. He would have watched his condition deteriorate. He would have watched him get skinnier and sicker and then more and more covered with sores. And it's obvious that he had the means to do something about it. And so it's hard to say exactly what the rich man's responsibility is, but to do nothing ever, to never show him any kindness, to never offer him a meal, to never make any effort to help is quite literally damning for this rich man. And again, this isn't a particularly new or profound idea from Jesus' teaching. Uh, He's already told the parable of the good Samaritan, the parable of the rich fool. He just finished up telling the parable of the shrewd manager. Uh, This is a big part of his ministry of things that he wants to talk about, how we treat the poor how we treat those who are suffering, how we treat the needy, this all matters. But as we continue on in the parable, what we see is that there is a deeper issue. This is not just about behavior. Behind this problematic action is an even more troubling attitude. And this is the next point we see in the parable. Jesus wants us to consider how we see people and how we see their worth. Beneath the rich man's inaction, beneath his failure to help, is a deeper inability to see Lazarus as a person of value, to see him with compassion. Uh, In verse 22, uh, we see the focus of the parable shift. We go from Lazarus and the rich man in life to Lazarus and the rich man in death. Lazarus is carried up to heaven, and there's not a real clear description in this passage, but we're told it's a place where he's comforted. We know from other parts of scripture that this is a place of abundance and joy and blessing. Uh, The rich man, on the other hand, uh, is buried and he finds himself in Hades or hell. This is a place of great torment and agony. What's interesting about this description is that there's a great chasm between heaven and hell, but From where he is in in Hades, where he is in this place of torment, the rich man can see Lazarus. And this is one of the most telling parts of the parable. The rich man cries out to Abraham, who's with Lazarus, and he cries out with this request. He says, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Now, you might miss this, but think about this request. Think about what he's asking Abraham to do. He says, hey, send Lazarus on this errand for me. Send Lazarus, this clearly lesser person who has nothing better to do than to make my life better. There's an attitude behind this request that is so revealing. Uh, one of the things that we're constantly trying uh, to teach our kids, and if you, you have kids, I'm, I'm sure you're doing something similar, is that you know they need to be able to communicate their needs in a kind, respectful, polite way. Right? We want them to ask nicely for things, to treat people well, and for the most part, they do a great job, you know, with their teachers, with their friends, with people here at church. But for whatever reason, there's this different tone that they sometimes take. With their grandparents, like Grammy, go get me some water. Grandma, I want a snack. Granddad, actually no, they don't do that with Granddad. No one bosses Granddad around. But you know, it's maybe it's just a grandma and Grammy thing. But you know, whenever I hear them talk that way, and it's, it's not really meant to be mean, but I always kind of want to pull them aside and just be like, hey, like you, you really shouldn't talk to them that way. Like, like Grammy doesn't exist for your needs, right? She's not only here to do whatever you want to. You can ask, but you know, when you talk to her like that, it's almost like she's your servant, which she's not. Now, to be fair, I think one of the reasons why they talk to their grandmas like this is because grandma and Grammy are both so kind and servant-hearted and so committed to the needs of Kai and Grayson, right? Like, they've made it clear to them that they want to do anything and everything to love and bless their grandkids. And so it makes sense that they would do this. But we also want to be careful about the habits that they develop. Because at the end of the day, we don't want them to be the kind of people who talk to others the way they talk to their grandmas and their Grammy. And more important than that, we don't want them to see people the way they may sometimes see their grandmas. As in, you are here to help me. You are here to do stuff for me. You exist to make my life better. That's obviously not a good way to see people. And it seems that, at least to some degree, this is precisely how the rich man saw Lazarus. It explains uh, why he never does anything for Lazarus during his life and why he talks to him this way after death. Because he believes that Lazarus is just another person who exists for his own needs. He believes that Lazarus is below him, he's beneath him, that because of his wealth and status and and, and money, that his needs are more important. And what's crazy, right, is that even here after death, even as he sits in eternal punishment for his pride, he still hasn't figured it out. He still hasn't learned that lesson. He hasn't found any humility. And what we're meant to see here is the really damaging effects that wealth, that status, that a pursuit of stuff, the way that can have an effect on us, the way pride can warp and twist the way we see people. And look, the, the first level of the parable is really important. Jesus wants us to see that how we treat people how we behave is important. But more than that, he wants to recognize our attitudes, the attitudes that sit below that. The way our values, our priorities, our own riches can affect the way we see people's worth and blind us to the needs of others. And this is so important because how we see people also reveals something even deeper about our values, and about the way we see life. And kind of what you see in this parable is that as it progresses, we go deeper and deeper into this rich man's psyche, and into his heart and mind, and what he really believes about life. And that brings us to our third point, that Jesus wants us to consider how we view what matters in life in the kingdom. So On one hand, we have to consider behavior. How does the rich man treat Lazarus? Then we consider just kind of his attitude towards him. How does he see people? How does he see his worth? But now we get to this deeper issue of what does he believe about life? What does he believe about what matters? Because what's really important for us to recognize about this rich man is that he is a contrast to everything that Jesus and the kingdom is about. His life really stands in opposition to the gospel. See, this rich man lives according to the prevailing wisdom of the time. This wasn't uncommon. This wasn't rare. This is something that we saw in the Pharisees and the religious leaders and all kinds of people believe that life worked this way, that the rich are blessed and the poor are cursed. Or that wealth and status and riches was a sign of a good life of blessing, and that poverty was a sign that you were a sinner, that you had messed up, that you had made mistakes. And so someone like the rich man was basically viewed as a good person, and it made sense for him to continue to pursue wealth to prove that that's who he was. And someone like Lazarus was seen as somebody who was just not worthy of any help. He was the only person to blame for his problems. Now, once again, uh, the moral of this story isn't that wealth is always bad and always leads to hell. Jesus isn't saying that poor people are always good and always go to heaven. But what he wants to do in this parable is he wants to turn this worldly system on its head. Jesus wants to reverse the values that this rich man lives according to, and the values that we are often tempted to believe in. See, one of the most important details, or one of the most interesting details from this parable, is, is the meaning of the name Lazarus. And Lazarus comes from a Hebrew word, which simply means, God will help. God will help. And when you think about Lazarus' role in this story and kind of his the action, he doesn't really do a whole lot. He's not a particularly dynamic character. He's not a hero, and he doesn't do anything to warrant salvation. But what his name reminds us, what his position in this parable tells us is about how God feels about people like Lazarus. That God wants to bring salvation and hope to people like him. God cares deeply about people like Lazarus. He's for them, and his kingdom vision is to see people like him restored. Just a few chapters before this, Jesus uttered these powerful words. He says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh. This really is at the core of the message that Jesus has been preaching all along, this great reversal in the values of the kingdom. Jesus says that God wants to bless those in need, the poor, the hurting, the broken, that they are valued and and God wants to restore them. And just as important that kingdom people, people who follow Jesus, that they're meant to have the same kind of heart these same kind of values. And so the rich man's failure isn't simply that he didn't help Lazarus. It's not simply that he looked down on him. But it's that his entire outlook towards his own life, towards others, was based on this broken worldly system. This flawed idea of who God was and what life was really about. And I think what's interesting is is when you compare the rich man to the Pharisees, you see some really strong parallels. Uh, And I think clearly Jesus wants us to see these similarities and wants us to consider our own lives as well. So you remember right before this story, we saw that verse, right? After the parable of the shrewd manager, the Pharisees are listening and they're sneering at Jesus. And how does Jesus condemn the Pharisees? He says, you guys... You want to justify yourselves before others. You are trying to justify yourself. That's a way that that Jesus describes the Pharisees several times in the Gospel of Luke. It's a word that he uses. And kind of the force of the word, what he's implying is that you are trying to prove your worth. You're trying to prove your value before others. Prove that you're good. This is obviously the the rich man's greatest flaw, that his obsession with wealth is, is all about justifying himself, proving himself with all the fine clothes, all the nice food, all the extravagant living. He believes that this is what makes life good and what makes his life valuable. But the Pharisees are doing the exact same thing. Now, they're doing it with money, They're also doing it with the law. They're doing it with religion. They're trying to be holier than everyone else. They're trying to be as as self-righteous as they can possibly be. And so what they have in common, what the rich man and the Pharisee have in common is the same mistake. And this desire to become an awesome, powerful, impressive person. They were completely blinded to what really mattered they both missed the message of the kingdom that was right in front of them all along. The message that Jesus had been preaching, the message that the law and the prophets had been pointing to. This great reversal that it's not about what you have, it's about loving and blessing these people. And that brings us back to the core truth of the passage. this thing that we began with, this truth that's kind of hiding in plain sight in this parable that I think we can now begin to unpack a little bit. Jesus wants us to consider the importance of Scripture in forming our inner and outer lives. See, the real question of this parable is, will wealth, will our desire for status and worth, will our desire to justify ourselves, will that blind us to what really matters? Or will we pay attention? Or will we heed the clear warnings of Scripture? we actually listen to what God's word is telling us? You know, our parable ends in in a pretty shocking way. Uh, The rich man is there in Hades, and he asks for a little bit of cooling on his tongue. Abraham says no, and then he has one final request. And you think maybe he's kind of turning a corner. He's not thinking about himself as much. He says, you know, I have five brothers. Send Lazarus to warn them to tell them about this horrible place so that they repent. Abraham's response is is stern. It's it's almost cold. He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. The rich man is unfazed, and he says, no, 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 wait, wait, wait. If someone from the dead comes, if someone rises from the dead and appears to them, then surely they'll listen. Abraham says, nope, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced by someone who rises from the dead. Now again, this feels a little bit harsh to us, but Jesus' point, he wants us to be as clear and as strong as possible. Because this really is the climax of the passage. It's Abraham saying these words clear as day. Your brothers, they should already know, just as you should have known. Jesus is reminding us that this rich man, the the reality of of the kingdom, it wasn't new. It wouldn't have been a surprise. We're told that when he ends up in Hades, he looks up at Abraham and he calls him Father Abraham. He calls him Father. He considers himself a righteous Israelite. He considers somebody who's living in light of Abraham's lineage. He would have known the Old Testament scriptures. He would have gone to synagogue as a boy. He would have listened to all the Sunday school lessons and memorized all these different verses. And yet, Abraham says, You missed what they were all about. This is what the law and prophets have been pointing to. They should have made this so obvious. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. Before your God, loose the chains of injustice and set the oppressed free. The message of the kingdom has been clear as day. This is what God has been doing all along. So, Abraham says to to the rich man, He's saying, You're not here because you didn't know. You're here because you didn't listen, because you didn't want to see this truth that was right in front of you, you missed it. With all the focus on on justifying yourself, on wealth, on status, all the nice clothes, all the great food, you didn't see the truth that was right in front of your eyes because at the end of the day, you didn't wanna see it. You didn't wanna change your life. You didn't want to really follow. This past Friday, Alyssa and I were out on a hike in, in the Escondido area and we were celebrating my birthday and so we went down to lunch there, one of our favorite lunch spots. And so the night before, we had never hiked there before, so we looked up hikes and we found one that we were super excited about. Really, I was really excited about it, I couldn't wait to get on this hike. We get to the parking lot and there's like a, like a half mile walk to the trailhead to this hike and so we're walking and you know, as we're getting closer and closer to the trailhead, we're getting more and more excited because it's beautiful, super green. You know, it's been raining and raining, and so everything is green. Everything is lush. There's rocks, and, and you can tell it's going to be a really cool hike. Well, at about 30 yards away from the trailhead, you can see where the trail starts, and I can see a sign in front of the trail. And, and before I can even read the words on the sign, I know what it's going to say in my heart. I can feel it. We get up there, and my worst fears are confirmed. Trail closed. I'm really disappointed. Like, well, there's another trail here. There's one more that's like a quarter mile away. We'll go to that one. So we walk over to this trail. Same thing. Trail marker that it's closed. I was so disappointed. Alyssa said that she thought I was going to cry. I wasn't going to cry. I felt like it. I was really bummed. I was looking forward to this hike, and we weren't going to be able to hike here. And so I, just, I, I, I stared at this sign for like a minute you know, my mind is just racing. Like, I just wanted that sign to not be there. I wanted it to not be true. Like, man, we could totally just walk past this sign. And really, no one would know. And if someone did, if there's like a ranger out there, it'd be like, oh, so I didn't see a sign. What sign? We were just hiking, walking. I didn't notice any sign. It was kind of small anyway. Or I could make lots of excuses in my mind for why it could make sense to just Walk past this sign. Okay, like, hey, this is a sign. It's not for hikers. It's for those crazy mountain bikers who are going to tear up the trail. Like, this is for those guys. Maybe that trail was there, or that sign was there from yesterday. You know, it had been raining yesterday, so it's probably unsafe. Today, it's bright and sunny. It's, it's yesterday's sign. Today, it's fine to hike. Or just, come on, it's my birthday. Like, please, like, uh, just let me go for this hike. I wanted so badly for that sign to not be for me. I wanted to ignore it because I wanted to enjoy my day. I wanted to do what we planned on doing. And that sign was such an inconvenience. And, you know, over and over again, Jesus asks us this question in the parables and in his ministry. He says, are you going to see the sign? Are you going to read it? Are you going to listen? Will you see the truth that's right in front of us? See, the reality is, is all of us are are blinded to an extent by our own desire to justify ourselves. Could be with wealth, could be with status, could be with comfort, could be with whatever, but we all have this vision in our minds of what makes life good and what makes life valuable. And so we often look at the Bible and the gospel, and we look at Jesus's teaching through the lens of how can this make my life better? How can this fit in with what I want for myself? How can this make me feel good? How can this improve my life? And when we do that, so often it makes it so easy to miss things. Not see the things that that don't fit in with what we want to see. And sometimes, if we're honest, I think we could admit that we don't see things because we don't want to see them. We don't want to see certain kinds of passages. We don't really want to hear those certain kinds of messages. We don't really want to listen to those verses because. Listen, I just want to enjoy my hike. I want to enjoy the day I had planned for myself. I want to live the life I have, and that's such an inconvenience. And there's all kinds of verses like this. It's not just about money. I think one of the reasons why Jesus talks about money so much is because it's such a pure barometer of how we feel about Scripture. How willing we are to really listen. Because even though money isn't the main thing in this parable, it's not the main thing in Jesus' teaching. Money does reveal our attitude about the main things, about the kingdom, about loving people, about serving, about blessing others, about being sacrificial. And so Jesus wants us to think carefully about what does our money, say about us how does our money how does our wealth how does our stuff how does our status how does that affect the way we live what does it say about how we treat people how does it affect the way we show compassion and care and generosity how does money and wealth affect the way we see people about the way we value needs and struggles beyond our own outside of our own needs for justification How does money and wealth and status affect what's important to us? See, money, it does say a lot about us, and we know that. One of the things that it always reveals is how we feel about the Bible. And I think one of the lessons of this parable, and, and it's kind of a scary lesson, is that this is a really dangerous path to live life kind of on this this hike of where we want to get to, the life we want to live, the things we want for ourselves, and and to grab onto the parts of the Bible that fit with that and to toss out all the rest, Jesus is saying, that's a scary way to live. And the point of this parable, of this, this contrast between heaven and hell, it's not a threat. It's not meant to kind of put us over the fire and say, if you don't listen, Here's where you're going to end up. But at the end of the day, it's a a warning about where that life leads. That over time, a chasm can develop between what the Bible says, how the Bible calls us to live, and what we choose for ourselves. And The longer we spend here, the wider that chasm becomes. And he says, there will come a point when that chasm, that choice that you've made will become permanent. There's no coming back from that. There's no repentance once everything is said and done. And again, it's not a threat, but it is a very clear warning that the choices we make, the life we choose to live, whether or not we choose to listen to the values of the kingdom, whether we listen to the message of the the real resurrected servant. That those things matter. And so the invitation is simple. Again, Jesus is reminding us, look, there's there's still time. Jesus said, "I, I can tell you this story about the rich man because that's not your story. It doesn't have to be your story. It shouldn't be your story. Because I'm here and I'm going to deliver this message to you and I'm going to die and I'm going to rise and I'm going to remind you of this life that you can have simply by walking with me, by trusting me, by putting your faith in me. But he says, we have to continue to listen, to experience the life he wants for us. And so every day we have this opportunity to come before God's word, with a genuine sense of openness and humility. And listen, not because it fits with what we want, not because it fits with what we're already doing, but because that's the life God's called us to. And so this is the heart of repentance. This is the heart of transformation. This is how we live in light of the resurrection that Jesus is pointing to. And so this morning, yeah, as we close in worship, we want to just continue to come away from this series with a desire to listen, to pay attention. Uh, the worship team and Matt, they're going to sing a song. That's, it's honestly one of my favorite worship songs. and uh, It's called So Will I. And the idea here is, is to recognize who God is all that he's done, this amazing story that he's telling in the scriptures and in our lives. And simply turn to him in obedience and say, God, yeah, I want to be a part of that too. And so as we worship, I just pray that this would be a time of reflection and repentance, that we recognize the ways that God is inviting us to listen. Let's pray together.